The scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you have a Bible, if you would join me and we'll read it. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I pray that the name of Jesus Christ would be greatly honored this morning. You have spoken to us by your Son, and I pray that you would continue speaking this day. I pray that you would be exalted. I pray that you would be cherished. I pray that you would be honored in the way we think, in the way we feel, the way we live our lives. I thank you so much, Father, for the promise that says that you will use your word to cause your will to come about, and nothing will thwart you, nothing will get in your way. Your word always brings back the fruit and the purposes for which you sent it, and I rest in that, Lord. I thank you for this word in Hebrews 1, 1, and 2, and I pray that you would use it to great effect now. For your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The author of Hebrews, whoever he was, had a deep love for the Lord and a deep love for his people. That's very obvious as you read the letter. Somehow, probably through word of mouth, he heard that some of his cherished friends, maybe even his children in the Lord, were straying away from Christ and going back toward their former way of life before Christ. These people had likely heard the gospel from the mouth of one of the apostles, or maybe more than one of the apostles, and they believed at great personal cost. We read in chapter 10 that they suffered such things as reproach, affliction, imprisonment, and the, the plundering of their property. So they paid a price for believing in Christ. But it seems that at least for a season that the per- persecution in their life was waning. And in the midst of this sort of less pressurized environment, their zeal for Christ was waning and they were just sort of sliding away from him. They were not so much uh, just abdicating their belief in Christ and quickly forsaking him. They were not apostatizing in a great way. I believe they were just simply slip sliding away from Christ. They were drifting away from him one step at a time, one moment at a time. I call this phenomenon soul drift. I'll show you in a couple weeks where I get that in the text of Hebrews. But I think it's an accurate description, an accurate diagnosis of the first readers of Hebrews. They were suffering from soul drift. And so the author of Hebrews wrote with the heart of a pastor to reach out to his friends and to woo them back toward Christ, that they might find an anchor for their souls in him and cling to him with all that they had. He wrote in a very real way to inoculate them from the disease of soul drift. And his tactic, as I pointed out last week, was not to sort of manipulate them with with external things, 
to try to just whip them into right behavior or into external conformity. He was not a legalist. His tactic was to lift their eyes up to see something of the beauty of the glory of Christ so that they would be so captured by what they saw that they would again anchor their lives in him. That they would be motivated by the sight of Christ to give themselves to obedience to Christ. As for us, we are in very little danger of returning to a Jewish way of life. There's almost no chance that we're going to end up going back to a, a lifestyle where there's festivals and sacrifices and all of that. So our context is very different from theirs, but I don't think that we're very different from them. I think that many of us here have heard the gospel and we've come to believe, and some of us have paid a price for that belief. I know in the first few years of my walk with Christ, most of my family wanted nothing to do with me, mainly because I think they, were, they felt convicted when I was around. You know, I, I was nobody to convict them. Believe me, they knew my past. I had no place judging anybody, and I still don't. But just th- that they knew I was following Christ, I really think they pushed me away because it, it made them think too much. I'd, I don't want to think about my life. So for years, my family pushed me away, just part of a price I had to pay to follow Jesus. But as the years go by and the pressure, those external pressures get less and less and less in some ways, in some ways I suppose they increase, but as those pressures become less, we live in a culture that is exceedingly zealous to draw us away from Jesus. And they're really good at it. Billions of dollars are spent to figure out how to market you into pleasuring yourself rather than finding your pleasure in Jesus. This culture is designed to cause us to to be distracted by the latest gadgets and the latest games our careers sports leisure money pleasure sex politics fill in the blank we are masters in this culture of marketing people away from christ so that he just becomes less and less important to us he becomes less and less captivating to our hearts he's just not as exciting as the latest new show or the latest new gadget, or the latest whatever. He becomes less and less central to the way we're actually living our lives. So say what you will about Jesus. How are you living your life with regard to Jesus? This culture is very skilled at persuading us to come into soul drift. And so in the wisdom of God, I believe that this sermon that we call the letter to the Hebrews was written not only to those first century readers, but it was also written to us. And and I mean specifically with us in mind. And the reason I say that is because there was not just one author to the letter of the Hebrews, right? There is a, a human author and there's a divine author. And the Holy Spirit saw beyond what the human author saw. The Holy Spirit saw 2012 at Gloria Christ Fellowship that there would be a a flock of people that would be coming through this pasture called the Letter to the Hebrews and grazing here, grazing deeply here. And the Holy Spirit meant and He means to use this letter to woo us into Christ, to call us out of soul drift, to anchor ourselves in Him who is forever stable. And so even though we're not exactly like the first readers, we're not very different. And I think that the Lord has written this letter directly to us. And I mean directly to us. He had us all in mind. By name, he called us. And so today, 
I want to look with you at the author's first major claim in verses 1 through 2a, and then next week we're going to come back to look at the rest of verse 2 through verse 4, and then after that I promise you we'll speed the process up a little bit, because otherwise we'll be in Hebrews for about 20 years or something like that. But these first four verses are so powerful and important to the whole rest of the letter and to life that I wanted to slow down here a little bit and make sure that we understand some things. So please let's look again at verses 1 through 2a and let me read that. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So the author begins by drawing a comparison between two things which already establishes the superiority of Jesus over everything, including the prophets of God. So from verse 1, the author's aim is to say, look and see how great Jesus is, and in light of the greatness of who Jesus is, cling to him with both of your arms. Follow him with all of your heart. Hold nothing back. Hold nothing back. And so on the one hand, the author is saying that God spoke and spoke and spoke and spoke over a period of about 10 centuries through a number of people and in a variety of ways. The Lord spoke through Adam, through Noah, through Abraham, through Moses, through David, through all of the prophets of the Old Testament. He spoke and he spoke and he spoke and he did so by means of commandments, exhortations, oracles, stories, miracles, visions and dreams, theophanies or appearances of God, angelophanies or visible appearances of angels, natural and supernatural events, pillars of fire and smoke. You'll remember in the temple or in the tabernacle, there were these things called the Urim and the Thummim, and the Lord spoke through them. He spoke through a still, small voice and and in many other ways. And so, God issued an extensive amount of speech over an extensive period of time through a number of people and in a variety of ways. That's the point of, the, of, of verse 1. As important and permanent and impactful as that speech was, though, it was, as it turns out, partial, and it was begging for something more. The speech of God through the prophets was pointing beyond itself to something greater, to something that would come and fulfill what it had promised and fulfill what it had anticipated. And so you get the second half of the comparison. On the other hand, in these last days, which I take to mean the the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, the time between his first appearance and his second appearance, all of that is called the last days. So if someone asks you, are we living in the last days? The answer is yes, we are. Yes, we are. How soon is his coming? I have no idea. But what I do know is, is it sooner than it was yesterday? That much I know. For now, in these last days, God has spoken to us in one way and by one person. Namely, God has spoken to us by his Son. Now, in order to ensure that we're understanding the contrast here that the author is giving, let me tell you a little bit about the way that the the original Greek language reads for this verse, because it's really not uh, possible to to see it in English the way that it gets translated. So let me just very sort of literally read this to you. From the Greek it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God was speaking. 
So your versions probably say God spoke, but in the Greek it says God was speaking. He was speaking and speaking and speaking and speaking. And then it says, but now in these last days, God has spoken. And the the sense of the verb in Greek is a once-for-all, final kind of speech. He was speaking and speaking and speaking and speaking, and now, boom, He has spoken. He has spoken to us by His Son. And so the idea is that there has come a, a sort of finality to the speech of God, which He spoke in His Son. That's an extremely important point. I'm going to come back to that in a few minutes. But for now, let me just say something about the nature of the speech of God. When we talk about God speaking, what are we actually talking about? I want to look at his speech in creation, in the Old Testament, in his Son, and in the New Testament. So four avenues of the speech of God. Creation, the Old Testament, his Son, and the New Testament. Let's start with creation. God created all things simply by the words of his mouth. Now that's something amazing to think about. I've challenged you before and I'll challenge you again. Go home this afternoon, sit in your living room and try to speak something into existence. Maybe something you really want. Just sit in your living room and say it. Lord, I speak a brand new Trek bicycle into existence. Let it be! I might do that this afternoon, but I promise you one thing. I will not in that way get a Trek bicycle. It will not happen. I don't have the power to speak things into existence, but God has that power. You've got to meditate on that. Think about that. So he said, let there be light, and there was light. One way we can talk about the speech of God is that the speech of God is the words of God that causes the will of God to come about. So God had a will that there should be light. He spoke words and light came about. So in one way, the speech of God is merely the means by which God enacts his will. But there's much more to it than that. In a a deeper way, even in creation, the greater design of the speech of God is meant to reveal to all creation the being of God and the glory of God. So when God said, let there be light, he was not simply enacting his will, he was revealing his glory for all creation. This is why David, I just imagine him night after night, looking at the starry sky and meditating on what he saw, and then at some point he just could not help but explode in praise and write these words in Psalm 19, 1 through 2. He said, the heavens, the the creation of God, Declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out what? It pours out speech. Speech. Night to night it displays knowledge. And so the handiwork of God is revealing for us the being of God. The creation of God is unveiling for us the very glory of God. It's not just information about God. It's not just an act or something that God created. The things he does, the speech he, he issues is meant to reveal his being. This is why Paul said what he said in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 20. He said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. To whom? 
to people who are suppressing the truth, to people who are living in this world and denying that there's a God. God is plain to them, the Bible says, because God has shown it to them. How has God shown it to them? Most of these people didn't have the written words of God, so how did that come about? Paul says in verse 20, For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Oh, please understand this. God's speech in creation is designed to reveal his being to us. Even this moment, God is speaking through the sky that's pouring through that skylight. God is saying, see me, see my power, see my sovereignty, see my wisdom, see my creativity, see my goodness, see my artistry, see my happiness, see me. So the speech of God is designed to reveal the being of God. Let's talk then about the Old Testament. Having created the heavens and the earth to reveal his glory in sort of a general way, God then set forth to reveal much more specific information about himself through his servants, the prophets. And though there are many, many details involved in that speech, which if God gives me life, will take me decades to preach through all of those details. I really pray, I hope and I pray, that by the time I retire from ministry, there's not a book in the Bible that I haven't preached through. So it's going to take a while. It's going to take decades. There's lots and lots and lots of details. But what we can say is that from Genesis to Malachi, the point is this. God, through his speech, is trying to reveal his being. He wants us to know him, not just information about him. So, a couple of examples from our time in Exodus. When the Lord uh, was speaking to Moses about what he was going to do for his people, he said in chapter 6, verse 7 of Exodus, he said, listen Moses, I am going to stretch out my hand and I'm going to take my people out from Egypt. And the reason I'm going to do that is so that they will know that I am the Lord, their God. So the words of God issued to Moses and the acts of God against Egypt were fundamentally designed to reveal, to unveil the glory of God for the good of his people. His speech is meant to reveal his being. And then when the Lord began to instruct Moses as to what to say to Pharaoh, I mean, he's telling this nobody kind of prophet to go into the most powerful king on the earth and say, listen, pal, give the people over to me. They belong to God. They don't belong to you. Let God's people go. A little intimidating of a thing to do. And so God tells Moses all that he's going to do to cause Pharaoh to let those people go. But in chapter 7, verse 5, he says that the reason he's going to do this is to reveal his being to the people of Egypt. He said, I'm doing these things so that they will know that I am the Lord. You may remember from our time in Exodus, you may remember that Egypt was the most powerful country on the earth and their gods were the most revered gods on the face of the earth. So when God challenged the gods of Egypt, God was challenging the most powerful gods on the face of the earth. And when he dismissed and defeated those gods, he was revealing his being not only to the Egyptians, but to everybody on this planet. He was saying, I am the Lord your God. And so when he issues speech 
And when God acts, the primary thing he is doing is trying to reveal himself to us, his being to us. With this truth in mind, we need to understand that every single word of the Old Testament, in one way or another, is pointing toward a greater, fuller revelation of the being of God through his Son, Jesus Christ. Every word. The whole Old Testament is essentially about Christ. Some of those words are very explicit, like I think of uh, Isaiah 52 and 53, where the Lord is just laying out so many details of the life and death and burial and even resurrection of, of Jesus. Other texts are not quite as explicit, but believe me, every word in the Old Testament is pointing toward Jesus Christ, every word. We spent a year and a half in this church going from Genesis to Joshua, the first six books of the Bible. One of the things I pray happened more than any other thing is that we would understand that from the beginning, God's speech in His Son, Jesus Christ, was plan A. It was not plan B. So from before the foundation of the world, God knew what He was going to do through Jesus, and from Genesis 1, verse 1, He begins prophesying about Jesus, and I literally mean that. I won't go into the details, but I see Christ in several places in the first verse of the Bible. And the reason I see him there is because I go to the New Testament and these writers are telling me, listen, he's there. And then remember, Jesus himself revealed himself to people through the Old Testament. Paul revealed Jesus to people through the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is essentially pointing towards something greater and saying, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. A greater revelation of the being of God is coming. And so the third thing comes the speech of God through the Son. Let me just get right to the point with this. God revealed the fullness of His being when He spoke through His Son. You need to think in these terms, beloved. God was not just giving us new or more or better information about God through Christ. God was revealing Himself to us in Christ. In Christ. Jesus is a full revelation of the very being of God in himself. And so in Christ, God was saying, here I am. This is what I'm like. This is a full and accurate and endless imaging of me to the world. So the speech of God by the Son includes the words of Jesus, yes. But mainly, it's about the being of Jesus. God is... The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ and therefore Christ is the fullness of the revelation of God. The speech of God by His Son is rightly understood as the revelation of God in His Son. The speech of God by His Son is rightly understood as the revelation of God in His Son. Beloved, this is why Jesus is called the Word of God. They call him by that name. In John chapter 1, verse 1, Revelation 19, verse 13, he's given this name, the Word of God. Jesus didn't come to deliver words to us. Jesus is the Word to us. Jesus himself fully unmasks, unveils, reveals the fullness of the being of God to us. He is the Word of God. So, 
if the speech of God through the Son is designed to reveal to us the being of God, then what do we make of the New Testament? Is the New Testament adding to God's speech in His Son or not? And I would just put it this way, no, it's not because the entire New Testament is focused on Jesus. All of it. The first four books of the New Testament are the story of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are other things involved in those books, of course, but mainly it's about the speech of God through His Son. The book of Acts tells us the story of what happened when the early church received power from the Holy Spirit because Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to them to enact His will upon the earth. And it's the story of that happening. Jesus working out His will on the earth through His church. The book of Acts is about Jesus. The letters from Revelation to Jude are all about Jesus. They are the apostles' teachings about the being of Christ and everything that's involved in that. The body of truth that's involved in that. The implications for our way of life that are involved in that. All the letters are about Jesus. And Revelation finally exalts the glory of Christ to a very high place and tells us about the purposes of Christ as creation comes closer and closer to its end. So, the speech of God by His Son is accurately and adequately preserved for us in the New Testament. That's the point to get. The New Testament does not add to God's speech in His Son. The New Testament accurately and adequately preserves that speech for us. The speech of God in the New Testament does not go beyond the Son. The speech of God in the New Testament focuses us in on what the Father said through the Son so that we'll know exactly what He was trying to say. At the heart of the speech of God is the passion of God to reveal Himself, to display His glory, and to invite us into a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. And for this reason, the speech of God finds its ultimate consummation in Christ because Christ is the ultimate revelation of the being of God. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. Now before I draw out one really important implication of this for our lives, I want to take a few minutes and make sure that we're clear about the relationship between God's speech through His prophets and God's speech through His Son. It's important that we, that we get this relationship right or we'll make mincemeat of the Bible. And I'm kind of thinking as a church we don't want to make mincemeat of the Bible, right? We probably don't even need to vote on that. So I want to be really careful at this point. And I would just state the principle like this. All of God's speech is still speaking. All of it. His speech in the Old Testament is still speaking. His speech in the Son is still speaking. God's speech by His Son did not eradicate His speech before the Son. The Old Testament has not become obsolete because God spoke through Jesus. Rather, the Old Testament is still speaking of Jesus. It's still pointing toward Jesus. It's still calling us to follow Jesus. God's speech, all of it, is still speaking, and it's still speaking to us about His Son. Now, I know that the author of Hebrews thinks like this because in 13 chapters, he quotes or clearly alludes to the Old Testament over 100 times. That's more than eight times per chapter, beloved, when you actually count the number. 
He clearly thinks the Old Testament is still speaking about Christ. And one way that I know that is very often when he introduces quotes from the Old Testament, he uses present tense languages, language. So if you'll just look real quick, uh, flip over to chapter 3, verse 7. You're going to see there he's about to introduce a quote from Psalm 95. And in, in chapter 3, verse 7, he uses these words. He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now what tense of a verb is that? Any, any English people here? What tense is that? It's a present tense, yes? He did not say, therefore, as the Holy Spirit said. Yeah, in that obsolete speech of God that's no longer relevant. He didn't say that. He said, as the Holy Spirit says. Psalm 95 was written 900 years before the writer of Hebrews wrote this letter. And yet he still sees it as living speech that's speaking for God to his people. And he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the wilderness. And so he sees the speech of the Old Testament, the speech of God through the prophets, still as living speech that's testifying to Jesus Christ. We're going to see this all over the letter. All of God's speech still speaks about the Son. Jesus agrees with this, and it's a good thing to have Jesus in agreement with you, right? I'm, I'm really glad. I'm usually almost always glad when Jesus says, I agree with you. He said in Matthew 5, 17, Hey, listen, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not. I have come to what? I've come to fulfill them. Yes, the speech of God in the law and the prophets has pointed toward me, and it's still pointing and pointing and pointing and pointing toward me. The speech of God still speaks, and it speaks about the Son. Paul agrees with this assessment because he's the one above everyone in the Bible that helped us understand we are no longer subject to the law of God. We don't have to live by the law in order to earn our righteousness before God. But this Paul used the law to preach Jesus Christ. And this Paul wrote in Romans 15.4, he said, whatever was written in the former days through the prophets, it was written for our instruction, believers in Jesus, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, we might have hope. And so Paul envisions the Old Testament as God's way of giving us encouragement and strength and hope, specifically in Jesus. Now, why can he say that? Well, it's because he believes the Old Testament is speech that is still speaking, and it's speaking about Christ. So the relationship of the speech of God through the prophets and through his Son is promise and fulfillment. It's not error and truth. It's not a matter of that God spoke and spoke and spoke and then dismissed his own speech and really spoke through the Son. That's not the idea. The idea is God was speaking and speaking and speaking and leading up to Christ and pointing toward Christ. And when the time was full, he spoke decisively and finally in and through the person of Christ. So yes, all of God's speech still speaks but it speaks to us about his son. So with that in mind, I just want to lead us to think through one important implication of this for our lives, and it has to do with the finality, the implications of the finality of God's speech. I would put the principle like this. God has nothing more or less to say 
than what he's spoken through his son. God has nothing more or less to say than what he said through Jesus. God has fully revealed his glory in Jesus, and he has nothing more to reveal than Jesus, period and end of story. So since the speech of God and his son is final, all others who come along and claim that they have received revelations that add to the speech of God, they're either deceived or they're mistaken or they're flat out lying. One of the three. Let me give you four examples. Some six centuries before, after Christ, a man named Muhammad came along and claimed that he got new revelation from God. And through that new revelation, this religion of Islam sprang about. But I feel it's an easy matter to reject all the truth claims of Islam because the speech of God and His Son is final speech. God has nothing more or less to say than what He's spoken through His Son. God is still speaking through Jesus, but He is not speaking outside of Jesus, period. So this man comes along and claims to have new revelations from God. It's an easy matter to dismiss him because God's speech in Christ is final. It's final speech. Second example. We can also exclude certain claims of the Roman Catholic Church, not all of them, but certain claims that reach beyond the boundaries of what God has set for the authority of the speech of the church. So in the Middle Ages, and for a variety of reasons that I won't go into, segments of the Catholic Church, not all of them, but segments of the Catholic Church argued that the teaching of the church councils through the years was in fact as authoritative as the speech of God in the Bible. They wanted to say it was infallible and absolutely true speech in accord with the truth of the Bible. After that movement, someone else came along and gathered a group of people and they made this argument that even now, when the College of Cardinals and Bishops meets with the Pope and they discuss a matter and discern their wisdom about that matter and come to one mind on that matter and then the Pope stands and speaks for the College of Cardinals and Bishops, they teach that his speech is infallible and equal to the authority of the Bible. Now to be fair to the Catholic Church, there have been many groups and even Popes in the Church who rose up to say, I don't believe that that doctrine is true. I don't believe that the speech of the councils and the speech of the Pope is as equal to the Bible. So I want to be fair about that. But to the extent that the Catholic Church says that their speech is equal to the authority of the Bible, we can exclude it because of what God said in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God has nothing more or less to say than what He's spoken through His Son. He spoke in Jesus and He's finished. There's nothing more to reveal because the point of revelation is to display the being of God and Jesus perfectly displays the being of God. Now as Protestants, we agree that it's important for the church to think through matters about which the Bible is either vague or silent. And we think it's okay for us to teach even with a measure of authority about what we think about a, a number of things. But we would absolutely vehemently deny that that speech comes anywhere close to the authority of God's speech by His Son and in the New Testament. Anyone who comes along and claims to speak with that kind of authority is by definition false. Because God has nothing more or less to say than what He's spoken through His Son. 
This truth also applies to false churches like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses because even though they differ in the details, both of these false churches and others have come about on the basis of somebody who said they had a new revelation from God that added to the speech of God through His Son. And it's just not true. Joseph Smith was a liar when he said he was hearing from God. And Charles, whatever his name from the Jehovah's Witnesses were, maybe somebody can help me remember who he was later. I know his first name was Charles. I have an association with that. So that's not hard for me to remember. But he also claimed to get new revelation from God. And I think in more recent times of Jim Jones and of David Koresh, who came along and said, we have new revelation from God. They don't. They don't. And I want to tell you something, if you ever hear me preaching things in this church that make it sound like I'm adding to the speech of God in the Son, you feel free in humility and boldness to come and rebuke me, because I will not do that. I don't want to do that. I have no right to do that. Nobody has a right to do that. God has spoken by His Son. He has nothing more or less to say. His speech is still speaking, but he is not speaking outside of his son. Never, ever, end of story. One more example. To bring this right to our very times, just recently, the United Church of Christ, which is a very liberal denomination, they recently launched a campaign called called God is Still Speaking. And at the end of the saying is, is a comma. So God is still speaking, comma. That comma is not a typo. In fact, they say on their website, it's the most important part of their thing. Why? Let me read their very words to you. Here's what they say. The comma invites us to believe that God speaks through other people, through nature, music, art, a theorem, the Bible, and in so many other ways. So the Bible is just one of many ways that God speaks. The comma pin I guess they have a little pin that you can wear around. It's just a comma to remind you of all this. The comma pin reminds us of the unusual religious freedom and responsibility we have to engage the Bible with our own experiences, questions, and ideas. So we're we're in a conversation with the Bible here. The comma reminds us to balance our rich religious past with openness to the new ideas, new people, and new possibilities of the future. So in their mind, this sentence, God still speaks, what it means is God is still adding to his speech in the Son. That's what they're arguing. This is where they come to the place where they can promote homosexuality and promote the destruction of marriage and promote so many other things because they basically set the Bible aside. We're in a conversation with God. We're in a conversation with the Bible. God is still adding to his speech in Jesus Christ, which, which in a way I find ironic because they've rejected Jesus Christ. Now, I joyfully affirm this idea that God is still speaking. All I'm saying is God is still speaking in and through His Son. And only in and through His Son. The speech of God has not died. It will never die. So yes, God is still speaking. He's speaking life and light and hope through Jesus Christ and through Him alone. In the past, God spoke by His prophets, but now in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, and there's nothing more to say. Beloved, one of the reasons that the first readers of Hebrews were drifting away from Christ is because they did not understand the power of God's speech in Christ. They didn't get it. They did not understand the finality of God's speech in Christ. 
And because of that, when other people came along and began to teach them new things or, or even new versions of old things, it was not that hard for them to be led away so that they were drifting back toward their former way of life because there was no anchor for their soul in Christ. One of the reasons that we drift in our lives is because we either don't understand or we're not fully persuaded about the power and the finality of the speech in, of God in Christ. We don't understand the import, the impact of the fact that God has spoken through Jesus and He has nothing more to say. Everything is caught up in Jesus. All the fullness of deity is revealed in Jesus. There's nothing more to say. And so the author of Hebrews writes with a pastoral heart to open our eyes and to awaken our affections to the greatness of who Jesus is and to the power of God's speech in Jesus and through Jesus. And the reason he's trying to do this is because he's trying to give us an anchor for our souls that will not give way no matter what. He wants us to know the joy of God in Christ by being anchored in Christ. And how I pray that we will submit to his design, and more, more than that, the Holy Spirit's design. How I pray that we will gain eyes and ears and hearts to see and feel and embrace Jesus with both arms. That we would understand this truth. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the depths and beauties of the realities of the things we've talked about today. I pray that we would understand the finality of your speech in Christ, the beauty of your speech in Christ, the blessing of your speech in Christ, the implications of your speech in Christ. And I pray that our hearts would be wide open to receive you, whatever you have to say to us. Please, word of God, come now, speak to us. Press these things deep into our hearts, I pray, and cause us to love you more than anything else on this earth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.